Maps? Check. Snacks? Double check. Tunes? Check. I'm Tony Stewart. I'm Aaron Badgley. And we are cruising the rock and roll highway in our way back music machine. Are you ready, my friend? I sure am. I have the feeling this is going to be the start of a great adventure. Kind of a magical mystery tour. Somehow I knew you were going to say that. It's been a very sad week in the rock and roll world. First, we found out that Don Everly passed away. And then on August the 24th, we lost Charlie Watts, drummer of the Rolling Stones. Aaron, what do you think we do something a little different today? Let's forego the road trip and just have a chat about Charlie's legacy with the Rolling Stones and what he meant to the world of popular music. What do you think? I think I think that's the one thing. I mean, you know, it, it's been a actually terrible week. I mean, we lost Don Everly, as you said, and we lost Tom T. Hall and uh, Brian Travers of UB40. And, you know, Charlie Watts, who was, um, uh, in many respects, a pioneer, pioneering drummer, you know, for a band that broke down a lot of barriers as well, right? Well, absolutely. And, you know, when I think of uh, Charlie Watts, I think of the reluctant rock star. And a lot of people, a lot of people don't know this, right? But, uh, Charlie Watts started as a jazz drummer and his influences were jazz players. And that's what he listened to as a teenager and um, continued to enjoy listening to jazz more than anything else throughout his entire life. You know, well, we talked about this and he looked like a jazz musician more than he looked like a a rock and roll star. He never, even when he had long hair in the late sixties, early seventies, he never looked like a rock star. No, absolutely. And uh, let's, you know, I like that term, right? The reluctant rock star. But uh, at the beginning of his career, when the when the Stones hired him, they, they courted him and he wasn't sure whether to take the job because uh, he was the only one who was actually making any money already as a, as a steady gig, right? And uh, finally, he relented and joined the band. And uh, as Keith Richards said, he was the glue that held them together. Yeah, I don't know that they can go on. I mean, there's only, what, two original members now? So, I mean, is it even worth calling themselves the Stones? I know that Ron Wood has been with the band since 74, but really, it's now it's down to, it's kind of like The Who, right? The Who are really Townsend and Daltrey. It's not really The Who. But I guess for those of you who want to see The Who, then it's good enough. But I don't know they can continue on without Charlie. Yeah, I, I think you may be right, and I think they may make that decision, but... Um... We'll see what happens, but let's have a nice uh, look at Charlie Watts' legacy and uh, what he brought to the table. Uh, very interesting fellow, and uh, where do you want to start today? Should we do the Canadian Connection first? Yeah, why not? Why don't we talk? I mean, because I remember that vividly. Um, you know, I, was, I wasn't old enough to obviously get into the club, but I remember when it happened, and you know what I mean? Yeah, let's do that. So let's talk about the uh, Rolling Stones and the secret L Macombo shows. Now this week, like I said, we're not doing a regular show. Uh, this didn't happen in August of 1977. It actually happened in March of 1977. And it was March 4th and 5th. And the Stones were looking for um, a venue to do a live show and they wanted to record it. And they chose the El Macombo in Toronto. But uh, quite an interesting story behind this, because I, you couldn't pull this off today. There's no way in the, in the age of instant communication and Twitter and 
other social media platforms, this the secret would have been out of the bag in about two minutes, wouldn't it? Well, I remember, I remember in the two thousands when the Stones were using um, an airport hangar. That's right. To, remember that, and it, it got out in you know five minutes after they started rehearsing. It was all over the internet. They were at the uh, Toronto airport. They were at this hangar. They're 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 rehearsing for the tour. So you're a hundred percent right. This had to have happened in the seventies or or maybe the eighties. But um, you know, and I always thought it funny <laughs> that. People went to see April Wine not knowing they're because for those of you who grew up in Ontario, I mean April Wine I think played everyone's high school, right? It well, that's right, big big uh, band back in the day for for kids of a certain age, right? Everybody listened yeah. to April Wine. Yeah, huge, and they still open. I mean, they opened for the Stones that night, which was pretty. And funny story is that you know not only did the Stones get a live album out of it, but so did April Wine. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, I, I was reading, there's a great uh, retrospective of this, uh, th- that article I shared with you from the uh, National Post, you know, and um, they told people, yeah, yeah you're going to get tickets uh, to an April wine show. And they had about 300 fans. And then as soon as people got on the buses, they said, uh, how would you like to go see the Rolling Stones? And uh, they, they just went nuts. They were so excited and they managed to bust them in without people catching wind of it. I mean, there was a big uh, entertainment truck, like a TV truck, I guess, that was parked outside, and people just didn't know what was going on. Everybody thought it was a a Rolling Stones, I mean, sorry, an April Wine concert. But while the uh, Stones were upstairs rehearsing, people on the street thought it was just a a Rolling Stones cover band uh, doing their thing. So what a great story. And then of course, all these fans get there and uh, get to see the Rolling Stones in an intimate venue. And at that point in 1977, I mean, you know, probably the biggest act on the planet, right? In terms of touring. And well, I mean, you, you, if you're going to see the Stones in 77 or 76 or 78, you're going to see them with 35 to 40 to 50 to 60,000 other people. My brother, I remember my brother driving to Buffalo to see the Stones uh, in 78, and there was, you know, 75,000 people at the uh, arena. Uh, not arena, the, the football field, right? So you're absolutely right. How many people, you know, had the opportunity to see the Stones in a club setting, which would Charlie Watts would have simply loved because it is a club as opposed to a stadium. Um, and it's a, it, some of it was recorded. Part of it was on a live album by the Stones called Love You Live, Um it was a very interesting time. I mean, it was, you know, there was a lot of bands doing that kind of thing. And I, and, and uh, can you imagine, Tony, you're on a bus, you're going to go see April Wine because you're a fan. And someone says, oh, and by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, a lot of these big bands um, love playing those small shows, right? Like it's a chance to get back to, to your roots a little bit, to connect with your fans. And, uh, you know, here in the Ottawa area, we have a place, I don't know if you've heard of it, but have you heard of the Neat Cafe? Mm-hmm. Well, well, you've mentioned it, yeah. Yeah, like the Neat Cafe gets these incredible artists, and sometimes they even get artists who would play in, in huge venues, and they'll come out uh, just to play a small show in front of 50 or 60 people, and it is, I've been there three times, and uh, it, it's just a wonderful chance, you're, you're 10 feet from the stage. You know, and the artists, uh, they let their guard down and they're chatting. And, and what a what a neat experience that is, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, really, a, it's really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And, and as you so aptly put it, you couldn't do it today. I, I, I mean, McCartney pulled it off in the early 90s in, in London. 
but you couldn't you couldn't pull it off like that now. You just couldn't. It's just when the, the world of uh, cameras and phones, someone would see someone going into a building. You know what I mean? Like it would be, it'd be out there in seconds. But then they here they they strategized. They did it well. Yeah, really well. It was uh, like a military operation. Didn't what was the nickname the Stones? Wasn't it the Cockroaches or something? Cockroaches. <laughs> <laughs> Which for those of you who've been to the Alma Combo. <laughs> kind, of, kind of apropos, <laughs> um, you know. So, I, you know, and of course, how many people said they were there? Thousands, but really, there was only a few hundred, and it was a very intimate setting. And uh, I remember the news. I, I mean, the Alma Combo at one point became the place to play. Elvis Costello recorded a live record there, and he played there live. And all these people wanted to do a little thing at the Alma Combo. So it was kind of what, the first time in history that Toronto became somewhat cool. <laughs> didn't last long because they closed it on the combo <laughs> but you know what's uh you know what amazes me even more right as <clears throat> as that's fine to do that for one night and not let the cat out of the bag but to do it for two nights like they yeah. like people didn't find out about it until after the second night right after after the second show on the 5th of march that was when it finally got publicized that the stones had done this show but imagine that all those people keeping that secret right being involved yeah. in the conspiracy, I'm using air quotes here, but uh, the conspiracy to keep it quiet, that's brilliant. But in, in, in 2021, someone would have been at the show with their phone and it would have been posted on Facebook, Instagram, yeah. Twitter, whatever. It would have been out. Exactly. So, uh, you know, great moment. And I, I do know that Charlie Watts uh, loved uh, doing that. But let's take a look. Uh, what did you pick for? Did you do a chart for back in uh, 77 or not? I'm not. No, you know what? I, I thought because we're just having a chat for the charts this week, I thought I would just focus on the stones. So I didn't actually look at what was big in 77. I will tell you, though, in 77 was the the cross the crossroads of punk and, and disco. So if it wasn't punk, it was disco. And a lot of the older bands like the stones were actually, I don't want to say struggling, but they weren't up there. I mean, they were, I mean, the Stones very quickly adapted to disco. That's I mean, right. You know, Miss You is disco. Well, ab- absolutely. If anyone wants to disagree with me, I'm all ears. <laughs> but really, it's disco. Oh, good it is disco. It is absolutely a disco song for sure. And yeah, it, it was good, but. No, that's right. But again, you know, you saw uh, Charlie's versatility, right? That that ability to, to play all those different styles and, um, you know, I just love the fact that uh, he was uh, reluctant to join the band in the first place, you know, and uh, I think he thought that he was going to end up as a jazz drummer. And, uh, you know, he uh, was very thankful later on in his career. He looked back and said, you know, I'm incredibly thankful for this opportunity, but it wasn't what he was expecting. That's for sure. But I think I think 90% of the people who form bands, because they formed a band just as the Beatles were breaking or just before and including the Beatles, no one thought that this would be a lifetime career. They, you know, there's that great interview with the Beatles where they're saying, you know, what are you going to do when the bubble breaks? And George is, you know, Ringo's talking about opening up hair salons and John and Paul are saying, well, maybe we can write for other people. You know, no one thought that it would go on like it did. And I'm sure Charlie Watts thought, you know, it's a gig for a while and I'll move on to jazz later on. Like, I don't know that he thought I'll be doing the stones from until I'm 80. (laughs) No, that's right. And that's pretty incredible, isn't it? The fact that that band stuck around this long and with, you know, very few lineup changes, right? It's, it's amazing. 
Well, I think it's a, a good time to tell the story, though, don't you, Tony, about the, the infamous drunk Mick Jagger? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. This is a great story. Well, and, well, and it was just uh, J- Jagger was drunk, and he was trying to find Charlie Watts, and he called over, and Charlie answered. He goes, where's my drummer? Charlie doesn't answer him. He goes over to the room, knocks on the door, punches Mick Jagger, and says, I'm not your singer. You're No, you're not. I'm not your drummer. You're my singer. You know? and, and and you know what you uh, you missed a, a part of that story too. This is it makes it even better. Makes it because you know Charlie was a style icon, right? He loved to dress up like he he was a man who loved a good suit. Before supposedly before he went over and uh, punched uh, Mick, he dressed up, got dressed <laughs> up, and walked over and in the middle of the night and punched him. Like didn't just go over in his PJs or whatever, right? Put on the the jacket and everything and. Now, of that age, as nothing is. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But uh, now let's take a look uh, that we did pick a couple of incidents from this week in rock and roll history, uh, just to talk about the Stones a little bit. Uh, so we have on August 31st, 1968, Decca released uh, what has been called the Rolling Stones' most political song, which is uh, Street Fighting Man. And that was uh, written after Mick Jagger attended an anti-war march at uh, London's U.S. Embassy. And the mounted police tried to control the crowd. There were about 25,000 people there. But uh, this single uh, didn't do all that well on the charts for a very good reason, didn't it? Well, for the most part, it was banned uh, in in America anyways, Um, you know, because of the, well, the timing of it wasn't that great, right? Because it came out at a time just after a couple of very famous skirmishes, and and uh, and then there was the anti, you know, there was a lot of violence in the streets, and it just it just didn't seem to be the the most opportune opportune time to release it as a single. And in fact, it didn't even do well in, in England, where it peaked at twenty one. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And uh, and the single is uh, was mixed in mono. I, I listened to both versions, you know, the mono version and the stereo version. And uh, boy, the mono version is interesting. And uh, you put in a really good quote in our show notes when he's talking about that, that the drum sound and Keith's uh, dirty uh, guitar sound. Do you have that quote pulled up? Like, do you want to read that? Oh, when Charlie Watts in 2003, Street Fighting Man was recorded on Keith's cassette with a 1930s toy drum kit called a London Jazz Kit Set, which is pretty cool, which yeah. he had bought in an antique shop, right? Um, it came in a little suitcase, and there were wire brackets. You put the drums in. They were like, And if you listen to the percussion on that song, the drums, it is kind of um, it's very distinct. Uh, and the, Keith loved playing with the early cassette machines because they would overload. And when they were overload, they would give this fantastic, you know, sound that you weren't meant to do. Um, and I love this. We usually played in one of Keith, in one of the bedrooms on tour. Keith would be sitting on a cushion playing guitar, and the tiny kit was a way of getting close to him. The drums were really loud compared to the acoustic guitar, and the pitch of them would go right through the sound. You could always have a good backbeat. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> quote. And, uh, you know, those glimpses into how they got certain sounds, right? Because uh, Keith Richards was always playing around with cassette machines and fuzz boxes. Well, satisfaction, right? The Gibson, uh, the fuzz box, which all of a sudden every guitarist had to have one as soon as he did that. There was a there was a band in the 1980s who never really made it over here. And the, the name of the band, and Tony, you will appreciate this. We've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it. <laughs> 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 Gr- 
great day for a bit. Yeah, nice little homage to the Stones there, but uh, yeah, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And well, and the song was actually recorded for the album Beggar's Banquet, which is one of their bigger selling albums. Uh, you know, one of the most famous ones. But the song itself was, <clears throat> you know, it was, I think, also a direct response to the Beatles' Revolution because. The Stones had heard Revolution. The Revolution wasn't going to come out for another two months. But being friends, the Beatles always heard what the Stones were up to, and the Stones always heard what the Beatles were up to. And I think it was very much in line with with the song Revolution, which is not indifference, but you know the line like "What can a poor boy do except sing in a rock and roll band?" It, it's it's not advocating violence. It's not advocating anything other than saying. This is going on and we're observing it. And that was what Revolution did as well, the song Revolution. Well, that's right. But, uh, you know, very pointed commentary on, on how the helplessness of the situation too. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So our third segment, we've got one more. Uh, let me take a look here. This, oh my gosh, this is typical. This one involves uh, Keith Richards, but uh, Keith has a, a habit of speaking his mind, doesn't he? And this is from uh, September 4th, 2015. And uh, he was in an interview with the New York Daily News. And uh, he basically said, you know what? Rap music is for, in quotes, tone deaf people. He went on to say, all they need is a drum beat and somebody yelling over it and they're happy. There's an enormous market for people who can't tell one note from another. And I mean, that created a bit of a stir, as you can imagine. Well, Keith, Keith is always... Keith has always been one for some great one-liners, you know, like if you're going to kick authority in the teeth, you may as well use two feet. I've never had a problem with drugs. I've had a problem with police. Um, (laughs) To make rock and roll, technology is the least important thing. Wow. That's pretty cool. Um, The only things Mick and I disagree about is the band, the music and what we do. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite quote out of the bunch. I think. (laughs) So when he came up with this quotation about, you know, he's not wrong. I mean, he's he's not wrong. Um, I mean, I know people are going to argue with me and say there's it's an art form and all that. And I think it's some, sometimes it is. But like anything, like rock and roll, like country, you can always have the people who just break it down to the bare components and just, you know, put it out. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, when I think of the Stones, I mean, I know they, they, like you say, they forayed into disco and they forayed into psychedelic music, you know, but the Stones are at their very best when they are a, like a blues band, in my opinion. You know, my favorite songs are of theirs are always kind of built around that blues chord progression and that's how they started their early career they were a they were a blues band who kind of morphed into a a rock and roll band but people don't know this right they came over to the states and they met a lot of these great blues men right like muddy waters and and these guys took the stones under their wings and and mick um always said later on how appreciative he was that that they had done that for them because they absolutely loved that music that these African-American blues musicians were producing. Well, I I think that to your point, Tony, I mean, in 2016, they put out that album. I think it was all covers called blue and lonesome, which was just the, you know, here these, these older guys are playing the blues and it was, it was recorded, I think in two or three days or something. And it was, no one knew it was coming out. They just, dropped this album and everyone kind of freaked out about it because it was it was it was um 
more than just back to the basics. This was the Stones paying tribute to those people you're talking about, you know? Well, that's right. And um, because to play blues music, right, you, I mean, it's essentially uh, boils down to three chords and the structure of blues quite often is just repeat like one line repeated three times and then a wrap up line to finish it. I mean, it's, it's very simple. Blues is uh, perhaps one of the most simple expressions of uh, music that we've ever come up with. Yeah. I, you know, and it, it's sad that people forget that they were, that's their origins, but you know, it's, it's, it's not, Jethro Toe's origins were in the blues. Um, Eric Clapton, the blues, you know, and so, I mean, there was a big blues revival in England. If you think about, you know, Peter Green from Fleetwood Mac and uh, John Mayles, Blues Breakers and Clapton and all those people were Jimmy Page even. They all come, Jeff Beck, all came from that blues thing, you know, and they just kind of exploded. Well, that's right. And that whole, uh, you know, blues revival in the 1960s, right, when college kids, uh, were lining up to see like Howling Wolf and Muddy Waters and all these guys, uh, you know, so they had a, a little, little bit of, uh, of a spotlight shown on their art form because in their own country, in the United States, I mean, they, a lot, a lot of times their music was buried and the Stones, uh, played a big part in helping bring that style of music to a much, much wider audience. Oh, I totally agree. And, and, and they did the same thing. I'll give them a lot of credit. I mean, the Stones often copied the Beatles. Of course, the Beatles had Apple Records, so the Stones came back with Rolling Stone Records. Um, but they signed people like Peter Tosh, you know, a great reggae musician who really never got the same acclaim as, say, Bob Marley. But he was brilliant, mm-hmm. Peter Tosh. And, and they would put out these really odd albums on the Rolling Stones record label. And more power to them. They they put out what they liked. And... and and it worked. I mean, you know, those things did okay. But so the Stones, I think, were always, they were never afraid to say where they got their sound or their, their influence or their anything, right? They were very upfront about it all. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm, I was looking at, uh, I like your idea for the chart here. So uh, let's go over your, you did a chart called the Top 10 Rolling Stones album. So so let's uh, let's take a look at that. Well, it's kind of interesting because, you know, Again, people may forget the albums they put out. You kind of had your favorite album and all that kind of thing. But uh, so let's just go through this it's very quickly. The top 10 selling Stones albums from 10 to 1. Number 10, I was surprised that this album did as well. Emotional Rescue, uh, 1980. Number 9 was Exile on Main Street. Oh, great album. Yeah. Classic. Number 8, probably my least favorite Stones album, but people that seem to love it, is Goat's Head Soup uh, from 1973. Number seven, Beggar's Banquet from 68. We were talking about Street Fighting Man. Number six was Out of Our Heads from the album, or from the album from 1965. From the album, 1965. Number five was Tattoo You, uh, 1981. Number four, Some Girls, which was huge. I I mean, I was in high school. Everyone had a copy of Mm -hmm. Some Girls, 1978. Even the two covers, you know, the one that was censored because the the actors and actresses kind of sued, saying, no, we're not going to be on a Stones cover. Um, Number three is Aftermath, or as the Beatles used to joke, After Geography, um, (laughs) (laughs) from 66. Number two was Let It Bleed from 69. And number one, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised at this one, Sticky Fingers from 1971. Yeah, that was a a huge album. And and, uh, yeah, no surprise there at all. 
And their last number one album in America, you might be surprised at this, Tony, was an 81 with Tattoo You. They never managed to go back to number one again after that. They were two, three, but they never could get back to the, you know, one number one spot. Now, I have a sneaking suspicion, though, that we're going to see a bunch of uh, Stones albums on the charts in the in the coming weeks, don't you? Oh, you wait, wait till you see the British charts next week, I guarantee you. It's going to be... The Everly Brothers, UB40, and Stones will champ them all, you know? But, yeah, that'd be big. Um, and rightfully so. I think it's good. It's a good opportunity to kind of revisit albums that we, I'm going to say this bluntly. I think we take artists for granted, Tony, and, and we just assume they're always going to be there and they're always going to make music. And we can't. We can't take these people for granted. Their they're, they're history, their, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're our music. And... Uh, so it's good to kind of rediscover old albums like old friends, you know? Well, exactly. And, you know, just from a another perspective, I mean, even though the Beatles have lost uh, two members, you know, and the Stones, of course, um, lost Brian uh, Jones uh, very early, but this is the first time in either of those, I mean, the two biggest acts of the 1960s, right, were the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. This is the first time that we've lost someone due to age-related complications, right? Because John mm-hmm. Lennon was in his prime and George Harrison had cancer, but, you know, George Harrison was still a relatively young man when he died. He was very young, and so was Brian Jones. Yeah. Wasn't he 27? He was 27, he that's right. So, yeah, then they were, I mean, John should not have died, and George, unfortunately, had cancer, and it's just, you know. Yeah, so this is the first, you know, really the first uh, member to, to die of age-related complications and and uh, and sadly i think it's it's uh we're going to see more and more of this in the next couple of years but uh and i think when you watch the paul mccartney he's he sort of he doesn't say that but you can hear it in his voice yeah he was he, he was pretty upset that. right you could yeah, just see very, it and uh, very upset it's heartbreaking to watch that yeah, um, I, I felt the same way. Now, you had also done a chart here with uh, singles, so let's take a look at what their top five well, singles I, were. Yeah, I did the top five singles. I was shocked that number one, I'm going to be up front. Number five, of course, we talked about already, their first foray into disco, Miss You. Number four, a song reportedly about Angie Bowie oh. called Angie. Yeah, well, that's how Bowie met Angie, through Mick Jagger. Hmm. So there you go. Number three was, of course, Start Me Up. Um, no, no surprise there. Number two, this is where it gets surprising. Yeah. Number two, Satisfaction, which I thought was going to be number one. I thought so, too. Honky Tonk Woman is number one. Now, I, Honky Tonk Woman is probably my favorite Stones song. I love that song. But I mean... I, I was going to ask you what your favorite Stones song was. Yeah, that's definitely up there. But, uh, you know, the importance of a song like Satisfaction. I mean, Satisfaction has all the ingredients of like a perfect rock and roll song, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's it's quite... But it doesn't have cowbell. <laughs> <laughs> no, you just need a little more of that. And then it's... A hundred percent perfect. I mean, you know, here's a here's a band that spanned how many decades? And 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 I know we're not doing our normal thing, but you know, the whole Beatle connection. Do we want to do that now? Or yeah, you know what? I was I was thinking we could just wrap up with uh, a little connection to the Beatles. Of course, many people always uh, you know thought that they were competitors to each other, and they were always duking it out uh, for chart dominance but they were actually very close to each other very good friends weren't they 
Still hard. Yeah. I, it's still hard. But I do remember a song that came out in the 70s or early 80s by Bob Segarini. I love the Beatles and my baby loves the Rolling Stones. <laughs> Great song. All right. Do you want to do the little intro and then we'll, we'll talk or do we just go straight? You know what? I think for today, why don't we just continue the chat and we'll just do this as a one take just for something totally different. Okay. Well, the Beatles and Stones became very fast friends after the Beatles saw the Stones playing in a club in 63. And the Stones had had a couple of singles out that had done nothing. And uh, I think the Stones kind of jokingly said, can you write us a hit? The Beatles, within 30 minutes, came up with I Want to Be Your Man. And uh, the Stones had the first top 10 single. <laughs> yeah, that's a great story. I remember reading about that. You know, they just went off and very nonchalantly, here you go. <laughs> yeah, I think they went to a coffee shop. John and Paul, they just went over to a coffee shop, came back and went, here, sing this. <laughs> uh, but but there was, you know, the Stones were there with the Beatles and All You Need Is Love on TV. The Beatles sang on We Love You, uh, you know, for 67. Um, the Stones were on the front cover of Pepper. Beatles were on the front cover of Satanic Majesty's Requests. I mean, the Beatles and Stones were friends. Jagger uh, put out a solo record. John produced the single from it. I mean, it was they were very tight friends. I mean, they were never they had an agreement. I don't know if you know this, Tony, but they 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 used to call each other up. And they'd say, well, we're releasing a single in August. And they'd say, okay, well, we'll wait till November then. Yeah, I'd heard that, you know, that, that yeah. uh, uh, which is really cool, isn't it? Like that, that's amazing. Professional courtesy. I don't think it exists anymore, but, you know, there it, it existed in the 60s and 70s. And I think they stayed good friends. I mean, Ringo certainly played on um, Keith Richards' album. George played on Ron Wood's album. I mean, they all, they've all been friends. So, yeah. So there's the Beatle connection, folks. The Stones and the Beatles, contrary to the old legends, are actually friends. And you know what, Aaron? Uh, even though we didn't do the regular format of uh, the road trip and the sound effects and all that, this was a really fantastic chance just to to sit down and chat. I know both of us uh, were uh, shaken a little bit by Charlie Watts passing, and uh, nice chance just to remember that and to talk about the Stones, don't you think? Yeah, I, I think this was necessary and it was good to do. And, and I'm sure people won't mind us deviating from our usual. Uh, it's still it's still us talking, but it's about, it, look, you and I both grew up with the Stones. You know, we, we they've been part of the soundtrack, whether we like them or not. And I do like the Stones. I'm just saying people may not like an artist, but it's part of their soundtrack. No, the Stones have been around forever. Well, exactly. And uh, you know, Keith Richards will continue to be around forever, I think. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you will. But I mean, who who can forget that classic video of the Stones doing? I know it's only rock and roll, but I like it. And all the bubbles coming in, and Charlie Watts is there trying to drum over it. All those things are iconic moments, and we can't, you know, they're they're part of our lives. And Keith Richards will continue to be part of our great grandchildren's lives. <laughs> I love I love your memes, by the way. You know the one with um, him teaching Willie Nelson guitar. It's fun. <laughs> I laughed for about an hour. So. Or the other one, right, where he's holding the little baby and the caption is uh, Keith Richards holding a, a young Betty White. <laughs> and, uh, <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so sad. It's true. <laughs> but, uh, what a nice chat today. And I'm excited. Yeah, very nice. I'm excited because next week we're going live again and uh, we'll be back to a regular Wayback Music Machine road trip. But it'll be in person again for the second time because you're coming out to my place. I am so excited. I can't wait. I just, I can't wait to see you and Cynthia again and just hang out. 
and see your 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 home and everything. I'm just so and I love Ottawa. So yeah, we're coming your way the Labor Day weekend. Yeah, so we'll have a special Labor Day edition of the show. So until then, uh, thanks for listening, folks, and thanks for indulging us today as we did something a little different. But we look forward to talking into your headphones again next week. So until then, stay safe and be well, and we'll see you next time. Music for today's episode of the Wayback Music Machine podcast was written by Rick Denis. The show notes, chart selection, and Spotify playlist were created by Aaron Badgley. And the artwork, recording, editing, and sound production was done by Tony Stewart. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to tell a friend or two. And don't forget to click follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player to get the latest episodes automatically. And we'd love it if you would leave us a review. You can also engage with the show by going on our website and leaving us a voicemail. We may even play your voicemail on an upcoming episode. Thanks for taking this road trip with us, and we'll see you next time on the Wayback Music Machine Podcast. Hey, turn the radio up. I love this song. The Wayback Music Machine Podcast is a Stewie Tunes production.